0: From Meltem Demers and Jill Carlson, welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future.
1: All opinions expressed by Meltem Jill, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io
0: oh hi there jill welcome back <laughs> it's been a minute <laughs> you miss me i did isn't it amazing that it took a global pandemic wrapped in an economic crisis wrapped in a monetary phenomenon to bring us back together
1: well i feel like i have just i've been spending a lot of time on twitter which is probably not the best thing for my mental health or sanity. Yeah,
0: you would answer my emails or my texts. I have to reach you through Twitter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Cheryl. Sorry, not sorry. Um, I don't care. But <laughs> I feel like I've been watching you get angrier and angrier and angrier on Twitter. And I've just been like, yes, yes, I agree. All of this. As I've been getting angrier and angrier sitting at my dining room table um, trying to <laughs> trying to focus on emails instead of CNBC. And so yeah. it feels good. It feels good to be back together. But, but it's
0: not even like at this point, I think I'm past the point of anger because anger is only useful emotion in so much as like you can channel it to help you drive other things. The point I'm at is what I have witnessed. Look, I come from Turkey. Like I have seen some fucked up stuff. I have seen dysfunction. Like my family can be very dysfunctional. My work environment can be dysfunctional. I've dealt with a lot of messed up, like just dysfunctional situations. I am watching the US government and the Trump administration, like everything that's happening. And I have I have never seen just this sh- level of just sheer... I don't even know if it's incompetence or willful negligence or what it is. But like yeah. It is. They're not even pretending anymore.
1: I, I'm not even mad at Trump right now. I'm mad at fucking Congress. The level of crisis that we are facing down and they can't get their act together to pass this bill that should be totally bipartisan friendly to bail out. Individual working people in the United States who are going to be out of a job, who aren't going to be able to make their rent payment in a week, is just, I wish I could say it was unbelievable, but it's actually totally believable. Yeah. So here's what I say.
0: Okay. So announcing the bill took them one day, passing the bill will take them at least 10 days, and actually implementing it, like getting checks and money hundred days a thousand days right what's Forget been really it. interesting to me and we'll we'll get to this topic in more depth is um the bail-ins though so if you look at the bill in depth and it keeps changing what's been really interesting to see is only about 200 to 400 billion of the money that's being pledged which is between two and four trillion is going to actual people oh, the I majority know. of it no, is going to industry and the majority of it is going to like the cruise line like
1: who? i loved i loved the tweet that i saw the other day where someone was like if we bail out carnival cruise lines i'm not paying taxes ever again that is a hundred percent how i feel i'm like at what point do we all just go on strike and say fuck you we're not paying our taxes to a government that is not taking care of this public health crisis that doesn't take care of the public good in general, and instead is handing money back to executives who've been doing stock buyback programs for the last three years. Um, and, and industries that are not systemically important. Like that is one yeah. of the biggest things. To hold me here. On, Jill, actually, yeah. The cruise industry
0: is important. Where else are we going to oh, get salmonella? <laughs>
1: I posted this I posted this the other day that like, look, in 08, the bailouts were bad enough, but at least there there was this sort of facade of a narrative about the banks being systemically important, that like all of the credit in the world rolled back up to them, and if they went under, then like it would cause this cascading effect. Some of that is total bullshit. Some of that is kind of valid. You cannot make the same argument. About cruises or even airlines, but when I posted this the other day, so many people came back to me and were like, "That's not totally true." Like Carnival, uh, Carnival Cruise Lines is really important to Florida's economy, and if people can't fly, like how do you expect you know global commerce to happen? Like blah blah blah. Like there is a difference between being important or important to a given region or a given subset of people and being systemically important that I think people don't understand.
0: Yeah. And I think, um, look, let's, let's just go. Why don't we do what we do best? Um, let's go back in history.
1: So <laughs> <laughs> I think what we do best is rant, Melton, which is what we're yeah, doing. But we but we do it through the lens of
0: like this, that's this fine. wealth of, of knowledge that we may or may not have. Um, okay. So, but I think one of the things that's interesting, um, so let's just talk about what's happening in terms of the pandemic and like neither of us are epidemiologists, but from a historical context, um, and I know you were a historian. Um, I am not, but I like history. So, look, we've had global pandemics before. I want to talk a little bit about what's happened in past pandemics um, and why this is so different. And then I want to talk a little bit about the economic implications. And as we get into that, um, I think we want to sort of talk about present day, what's what's happening um, where all of this money is coming from, where it's going. And then I think we want to end on kind of where the world might go and what the world might look like. Um, if you know, some of the things that we're seeing actually
1: start to happen, what do you think? I I will do my best to keep to that, but I can't promise that I won't go off down. You have a lot of rage. I I can sense your rage through the
0: phone. It's palpable.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, All right, jelly
0: beans, let it out. So let's talk about the past.
1: So yeah, I mean, I was telling you this the other night. I've spent a ton of time reading in sort of a masochistic way, probably over the last week about the Black Plague, the Spanish flu, when things like this happened in the past. Firstly, I just want to say, so weird to me that the 1918 pandemic was a huge crisis at the time it had a huge impact on social norms on the economy etc i took not a single class in my whatever it was 18 years of education that covered the 1918 pandemic i had literally i will come out and say this up front i had not heard of it until like three months ago had you nah baby. (laughs) I had never heard of... (laughs) Sorry, that was a bad response.
0: I had never heard of... Any of these things. Obviously, I had heard of of the Black Plague. Um, that obviously, you know, comes up a, a lot. And the subsequent um, is it the Reformation that came after the plague, or like the Enlightenment,
1: uh, the Scientific Revolution, and then the Renaissance, Right. which it, it led is led to actually the, very interesting. Yeah, the ways it, in it which it led to it, the,
0: like introduction of hygiene um, practices, of like new breakthroughs about um, virology and how disease spreads. Like people realize maybe you shouldn't shit in the water that you also.
1: Drink. It was like a pretty good time for humanity. I, I predict, actually, I feel like we're going to look back in maybe it takes a hundred years on the hygiene practices of today and be like, "Oh, that was foul! Like people walked around airports without putting masks on. Like, what the hell is wrong with people?" I really suspect that there is going to be some kind of a revolution on on the hygiene. For, I hope <laughs> so because
0: I watch people walk around and I'm like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> okay. So the talk about the Spanish flu. So you'd never really heard of it, had never really heard about it in a history class when you studied history. And what did so, you learn okay. in this, this voyage of yours?
1: So I I got curious about the name because obviously there has been a lot of outrage, I think rightfully so, around Donald Trump and some select others calling uh, COVID-19 the China flu or the China virus. Um, That's problematic on a lot of different levels. But I then became curious as to why the Spanish flu is called the Spanish flu. And get this, the Spanish flu is called the Spanish flu, not because it originated in Spain, not because Spain had a particularly deadly outbreak of it, but because it happened right towards the tail end of World War I. And at the time, the countries that were experiencing the biggest outbreaks were actually the United States, Great Britain, and Germany. But guess what? None of them wanted to allow the press to report on it because they were worried that this would damage war morale. Now, Spain was fully neutral during World War I. And so they didn't have the same kinds of issues. And so they were the first ones to really start reporting it and to raise the alarm bells around this. And lo and behold, it became known as the Spanish flu. Um, But I think that there are just some very interesting implications there. Obviously, there have been a lot of parallels drawn uh, between China and um, sort of Chernobyl-like responses of being in denial initially, of not wanting to take ownership for these things. Um, Obviously, we can debate sort of the validity of those parallels. I've been thinking a lot about how a lot of what I initially felt towards China in the early days, as news started to leak out about coronavirus, I now kind of feel about the United States where I'm like, are we suppressing numbers? Like, are we suppressing testing so that our numbers don't look as bad? Like, are we robbing Peter to pay Paul later? Like, what is going on here in terms of the reporting and the the lack thereof and even the outright censorship? of
0: it. Yeah, and that's what I think is is so interesting, even in looking at um, the infection rates for COVID, right? So um, initially, you know, it started in China, but now the number of cases, I think the U.S. is winning. We're number one. <laughs> number one. Sorry, that's mm-hmm. a terrible joke. But um, <laughs> the U.S. now has the highest incidence of cases. Um, I was telling you this the other day. Um, Italy, obviously, has had a really rough time containing the spread of COVID. I think a a lot of people just didn't take the threat seriously. And again, you know, it's not as prevalent in the Western world um, for people to wear masks. People just view it as, as strange. I think it's not part of our, our culture. Whereas I think when you travel in Asia, like if people are ill, they do other people, they are interacting with the courtesy of wearing a mask. So it's more if you're ill yourself, I think people tend to wear masks. And then because the air quality um, isn't as high, I think people also tend to wear masks um, for that purpose. What I think is interesting. So you have Italy has all these outbreaks, has all of these cases, the US, like, I was just talking to my friends in Houston, Houston just implemented a quarantine, like just tonight.
1: I mean, that's the case across so much of the world still. Like, the UK only just implemented it, I think, in the last 48 hours. That's crazy. Like,
0: London is going to be...
1: Can I just say... Can I just go off for a second? The UK has had the most fucked up response of anyone to this, where they initially were like oh, no, we're going to be the utilitarians who take the approach of like, we're just going to get to herd immunity. And, you know, sure, 80% of the population is going to get this, but like, we're not going to take the economic hit that everyone else is taking. And then just sort of gradually over the course of a week, it's like reality is sunk in for all of the politicians over there. And they're like, oh, wait, maybe that's not a, a politically viable thing for us to do, or be actually the right outcome from like, health well-being or even economic perspective and now you get boris johnson getting up on tv sort of in his very british manner you know saying and indeed it turns out that you should all stay home and when your friends call you tell them to fuck off and that kind of thing and it's like all right you guys had all of this fucking data you know weeks ago what is going on
0: Yeah. So look, I took the conservative approach. Like start of March, no more travel. Um, End of first week of March, like no more office. I was like, go home, go be with your families, like be somewhere safe where you have people you like and want to be around. Like go do that. So this is week three of remote work for me. That's fine. Um, what I think is really interesting is like people were going into their offices. People were hosting events. And I keep having conversations with people. And every conversation I have with people, it's like there are two varieties of people. There's one variety of person who's like, oh, this is fine. It's just the flu. It's going to pass. And then in a few weeks, like, everything is going to go back to normal. And that just boggles my mind because nothing about this is normal. I don't think things are just going to go back to normal. (laughs) Like, what? So there's that type of person. And the second type of person uh, is the person who is just like in this coronavirus rabbit hole and is just so deep in it. And like, they just cannot stop. And I just can't talk to them anymore because everything is like, oh, you have to do this. Like, eat this. Do that. Go here. I heard. And I'm like, oh, my God, please stop. Like, just Stock up on work.
1: chloroquine. Yeah,
0: no, please stop. Yeah, don't, huh. please don't drink pool cleaner or whatever it is those people ingested after watching Donald Trump on TV. They were like, oh, this is hydrochloroquinine. And they went in their pantry and they drank pool cleaner know, and died. And I'm it like, so sad. People, please, like. In moderation, be in moderation. Don't be willfully negligent, but also don't be maniacal. Like, please, can we have some normal, like some balance?
1: Right. Anyway. Right. No, my, totally. That's my rant,
0: maybe. Okay. No, I,
1: I love it. I love it. <laughs>
0: okay, so let's talk about um, how things aren't going to go back to normal. Because I think what we're seeing right now, nothing about this is normal. Just in the last two days, just to like give people a picture of what's happening in the economy. Okay, so there's this thing that happens in the, the market. Um, when you reach certain threshold, when asset prices move up or down too quickly,
1: what happens is
0: um, a trading freeze gets implemented.
1: Well, actually, a, it's only when... And they move down too quickly, which is bizarre to me. But we can get into that.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I think the first circuit breaker is seven percent. The next mm-hmm. one is f- is it thirteen or 15? thirteen? Thirteen, and then the last one's twenty. That's right. Yeah. So the idea is okay if you if asset prices drop by seven percent from op- market open at nine thirty a.m. There's the first trading halt, and the halt is for fifteen minutes. Then if you hit the uh, 13% limit, trading is halted. Is it for an hour, Jill?
1: I'm not sure of the amount of time. I thought it was for 15 minutes still, but...
0: Okay. And then if you hit the 20% circuit breaker, you're done for the day. Game over. You all go home. Yeah. Okay. so, So let's just talk about this. In the last 10 sessions of the US market, we've hit a circuit breaker. Is it three
1: times or four times? I think it's four. I honestly, I feel like the last month. two weeks, since March 9th, I feel like a month has passed. And I just, I don't even know what day of the week it is anymore. Okay, so. So, so in the markets, right,
0: there have been four consecutive days, in uh, not consecutive, sorry, four total days in the last 10 trading sessions where we have hit a circuit breaker. Okay, that is unprecedented. Just today, we saw the biggest rally in markets, uh, markets up, I think, nine, or 10% overall for the day. Biggest mm-hmm. rally since 1933. Okay? Not normal.
1: It's um, so violent in both directions is the thing. Like people tend to focus on the down, but the moves back up, the bounces have been equally violent. Yeah. So Is-
0: volatility in every asset class. So if we look at what's happening to equities, right, equities um, hit all time highs. I think one of the things that was sort of the, I when I talk about the the political landscape in the US, when I think about the Trump administration and how they've sort of managed policy, when I think of Donald Trump, um, I think his goal, like if I imagine what's going on in his brain, he has one Metric that matters to him and its number go up, right? And we talked about this before. And I think yep. the U.S. sort of policy landscape has been dicti- dictated by this idea of number go up, stock market go up, right? Wealth creation go up, financialization go up. Like we want maximum throttle number go up. And by
1: the way, it's Wait, the same thing well, in China. I want to just correct something we said earlier. I just looked it up. We have hit exchange mandated halts 9 times in 10 days. Wow. Yeah. This <laughs> is what I mean when I say like this all just it feels like the last week has been a month a month long, like I've completely lost track of this. No, hold on. But is, some of
0: those circuit breakers, some of those circuit breakers are for futures, right? Where futures started the day because futures markets sure. open yes. yes. earlier, right? Yes. So this is the other thing I wanted to say. So Monday morning, um, actually Sunday night, futures open limit down, meaning within the first five minutes that futures were trading on Sunday night, we hit the circuit breaker. limit down then the last night aka going into tuesday's trading session for futures we hit limit up where we crossed the seven percent threshold so like the volatility again like we can't decide what direction we're going an iota of good news just
1: pumps shit upward it's crazy i don't understand here's the thing is as you put it like these are unprecedented times and Therefore, all of the models are broken. All of the correlations have broken down. One of the most interesting things to me to watch has been how U.S. treasuries have behaved. So U.S. treasuries are generally considered a safe haven asset, i.e. in volatile times, in times where there is fear and panic in the markets, in times when equities are selling off, usually a lot of that capital flows into U.S. treasury bonds. U.S. Treasuries have been selling off for the most part. They had a couple of days of very strong rally, but have been selling off over the last two weeks, meaning meaning that there have been outflows out of U.S. government bonds. Meaning the only takeaway that you can possibly have from all of this is that all of this money, all of the money in the world is dashing for cash. And that includes across commodities. Gold is not performing well. Um, oil has been in a total route for a bunch of different reasons around supply. Yeah. supply we could do a whole and, podcast and around and oil. On the <laughs> demand side. Yeah, I know, Meltem, you can probably go off on this. But yeah, keep an eye, I would say to listeners, keep an eye not just on where the S&P 500 is, what the Dow Jones did, but also on these other asset classes, because that is telling me way more about what's actually going on in the market. Yeah. Oh,
0: so let's talk a little bit then. So I think you're totally right. Um, I think the analogy I always use is in a time of crisis, when you're freaked out, you want an ATM, right? And in a financial sense, when you look at your portfolio, there are a handful of ATMs you can go to. You can sell off equities, but I think a lot of people have a lot of exposure to equities and they're trying to hold and not sell because they believe the market will come back. So then what other ATMs do you have? You have... Um, commodities. You have gold and other precious metals. You have cryptocurrencies, by the way. Crypto is great to exchange into cash when you need money to pay rent. Um, So I think the interesting question is like, what are those things you go to that are easiest to cash out of that are the most liquid, right? Going back to earlier episodes we've done, Jill, on liquidity. I think people forget the other thing that's really important here is how deep is the market. One thing I also want to point out is a lot of people utilize money market funds to store cash. Money market funds, by the way, which are required to have 30% of their total assets, highly liquid, money market funds are getting depleted by outflows. And so... This Sunday Goldman had to inject 2 billion dollars into its money market fund. Yeah. Northern Trust yeah. had to inject a billion into its own money market fund. Like we have never seen that before. It is absolutely bonkers. But so if you're so, you're a regulator, you're a policymaker, you're looking at this, what are the levers you have? Um so I want to talk about the Fed and what they're trying to do and I want to talk about what's going on in Congress because I think both are are equally interesting. But Jill, you have something to say go
1: well yeah just riffing off of that i mean i think that it's important to distinguish for people there is monetary policy and then there's fiscal policy and both are knobs that policymakers different groups of policymakers um in one case on the monetary side it's the federal reserve or whatever central bank it is and on the fiscal side it's actual elected government officials in the case of the united states it's congress um and they both have these knobs that they can turn in order to try and ramp things up, heat things up in the economy, promote spending, promote growth. Um, or in the case of, you know, an inflationary market where growth is just getting a little bit out of control, they can also tamp it down. Obviously right now, what we're talking about is trying to ramp things up or just even keep it going. It's not even about promoting or spurring growth. It's just keeping the cogs turning. Um, and so on the monetary side, It's What it's called is monetary easing. Um, And, of course, anyone who sort of grew up through or followed the 2008 crisis is well familiar with the mechanisms there. Um, You cut interest rates, and the Fed has done that. They cut interest rates to zero. They were basically the first policymakers in the United States to make any move, and that's what they did right off the bat. Um, And then they're also announcing quantitative easing like measures, uh, where they're going into the open markets and, and doing purchases. So that's the monetary side.
0: But let's take a step back, right? And and so let's talk about um, what governments are trying to do. So most governments, including the U.S. government and the Bank of England and, and other entities, they typically have certain goals around and certain uh, measures in the economy that they're trying to optimize for. So typically, one of these measures is inflation, right? Which is um, basically all about purchasing power parity, and um, the U.S. and the U.K. both try to keep inflation at around two percent per year which means there would be 2% uh, price appreciation sort of as an average across the board per year Mm -hmm. across different assets. And CPI is a good measure of inflation. So the consumer price index. some people
1: say it's a good measure of inflation. (laughs) We can debate that later.
0: Yeah, and then there's the Big Mac Index published by The Economist and a bunch of different measures. But generally, most um, economies have inflation targets and they want to try to keep inflation reasonable. Obviously, no one wants the crazy inflation that you're seeing in countries Like uh, Venezuela And nobody wants the crazy stagflation You have in places like Japan Where there is is no growth. So the Fed, basically, what they're doing um, is they're turning these knobs to your point, Jill. They can change interest rates. Um, and they can cha- And changing interest rates is intended to sort of provide liquidity to the system or contract liquidity, right? So when interest rates are low, more people can borrow. More importantly, um, they lower the uh, rate at which banks can borrow from the Fed itself. So the idea is when you lower rates, more liquidity in the market, uh, more credit in the market. And then when you increase rate, it sort of tightens and it leads to contraction in the market because debt is more expensive. Okay. Let's just be really clear. Interest rates are at 0%.
1: In some parts of the world, they are negative. Um, And also, it's worth mentioning, though, in much of the world, interest rates have been negative for months. Like, this is not just like a coronavirus-induced thing. Interest no. rates have been negative for months. We've been living in this environment of monetary stimulus basically since 2008. And it hasn't left monetary policymakers with much room to really go anywhere in order to okay. inject money into the
0: system. So this is what I want to get to, right? So you have interest rates effectively at zero. So you can't turn that knob anymore. That's That knob's like... It's zero, right? Then um, the second thing is asset buybacks, right? So it used to be that the Fed would buy treasuries, right? So they would buy um, US treasuries in the market. Now they're increasing the scope of what they can buy. So they started with saying, we're going to buy corporate bonds, meaning corporate debt. So they started doing that. Did you know what they announced yesterday, Jill?
1: I do, but tell us, Melton
0: they are going to start buying ETFs.
1: I know. I know. Okay,
0: Okay. Let this sink into your brain. Our government is buying junk grade corporate debt with our taxpayer dollars. Number one. Number two, they're buying all sorts of dog shit ETFs with our money. So all of a sudden... You have a situation where you go from having a private capital market to having a quasi-public capital market where the government is not only the lender of last resort like they did in 08, but they're actually the buyer of last resort as well. And that is a that is like now considered normal. By the way, Japan did this 20 years ago. In Japan right now, the BOJ owns 80% of all Japanese equities.
1: Totally, they were. They just started buying everything, every asset out there, in order to try and stimulate growth. But so here's the thing. Here's the thing is that's the monetary side. We need to talk quickly about the The, fiscal fiscal. stimulus side, right? Which is which is. I I don't know know if I can. (laughs) Like my blood
0: pressure, my blood pressure. I know. know. We're going to come back
1: to it. I also want to talk about how ETFs and passive investment vehicles are potentially going to be where the cracks in the system here emerge, but we can get into that I, in yeah, a bit. I
0: mean, if we use money market mo- funds as the canary in the coal mine, like, holy shit. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> but so, okay. That's the monetary side. So central banks can have these two knobs that they turn right in terms of where they set uh, the benchmark interest rate. And also in terms of their open market operations, IE yeah. going into the market and buying junk bonds and ETFs on the fiscal side. You need, at least in the United States, you need Congress and Britain, obviously, it's parliament, you know, pick your, pick your legislative body of choice. You need those policymakers to pass packages that can take the form of bailouts, that can take the form of government spending on like infrastructure projects, for example, or Hmm. that can take the form of what has come to be called in many cases, helicopter money, um, i.e., direct cash transfers to individuals. Um, And then, you know, obviously that can also apply to small businesses, et cetera, as well.
0: Okay. Here's my issue with all of this, right? So, number one, I do think um, giving money directly to people is. What makes the most sense to me? I think bailing out businesses doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I know people talk about trickle down economics, but I think generally when you look at the disparity between executive pay and worker pay, like it used to be one to twenty, it's now one to two thousand, right? And executives getting paid sixty to hundred million dollars a year, mostly in stock that they then buy back, and like there's zero sort of limitations on that, whereas employees are getting paid just just salary, like it's it's completely fucked. I think one of the things that I see that's super concerning is a trend I want to call financialization. And it's worth just dwelling on for a moment because it's really important to understanding where we're going to go next and why I think it's terrifying. Do you mind if I just riff for a second, Jill? <laughs> I'm I'm wait,
1: I'm waiting for it with bated breath. Let's go. Okay,
0: so financialization is this interesting trend, um, and basically what it what it means and and the way you sort of look at it over the last five years, really, we've seen this really interesting trend where the value of the S and P 500 is growing faster than gross domestic product or GDP. So basically, what that means is returns to capital or returns to, um, money are greater than returns to labor or actual people producing things. This is called financialization, and it's run rampant in this country since really the last financial crisis. What this has meant, by the way, is we are seeing a wealth disparity emerge that is getting exacerbated day by day, where there is a new class of financial elites who are capturing the majority of this value creation that's happening through financialization And the people who are actually working and laboring are not able to capture their share of value. And so what happens over time is you start to see what we have today, where three people in the United States, three men, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, and Mark Zuckerberg, between the three of them, have more wealth than the bottom 50% of Americans. So we haven't seen this level of wealth inequality in a very long time. And the question isn't, is it fair? Is it not fair? Um, I don't think like, I'm not the moral or ethical police. The question is, is this sustainable or unsustainable? And I think what we're looking at here is an environment that's completely unsustainable. Because the more this continues, and the more money you inject into the system, and the more you financialize the system, the more you exacerbate this trend of financialization the more you exacerbate the disparity and the gap between the people who own capital and the people who only have their labor, right? Their sweat equity to contribute. And the more that exacerbates stagnation in your economy. And this is why I think um, I have so many issues with the bills that are on the floor of Congress right now. We are talking about an economy that produces roughly $22 trillion in GDP per year. We're talking about injecting for... By the time this is all said and done, I think we'll have injected, injected over $10 trillion into the US economy, if not more. So we're talking about an economy that is going to inject 50 to 100% maybe of its GDP into the market. But the way they're going to do that is not by giving it to people and trying to reduce um, this wealth disparity. The way we're going to do that is by exacerbating this disparity and giving money to private um, owners of private corporations and having them capture the majority of the value that gets created through the financialization of the system. And this is like this is a f- this is when the pitchforks come out. And I know I've been getting not angry, but like I've felt riled about it because it's such a poor response and it's it doesn't like I'm not the smartest person in the room. Even I can see your average person can see this is so completely and entirely unsustainable.
1: It's unsustainable over the long run and it is also not moving the needle sufficiently for people in the short run. I am convinced based on everything that you just said and based on a number of other factors that we are going to see mass inequality in the United States on a scale and to an extreme that we have never seen before, because not only are people getting economically left behind through, through all of this, but they're also, if you think about the U.S. healthcare system, it is probably one of the worst in the world in terms of the inequality of treatment that people receive. And people look at the NBA getting fucking tested. People look at Harvey Weinstein getting tested before their mom or dad does or before their daughter does. Right. Who has a like asymptomatic,
0: powerful people get tested before exactly. people who are symptomatic. Exactly. And it yeah, is it's a class bullshit. Thing.
1: And people are going to be angry and they should be. And then... Following all of this, people are going to be literally, I'm not trying to be like a, a someone stirring up sort of malcontent here, but people are going to be literally burying their loved ones and then looking at their bank account and looking at what, what has anyone done for me lately? What has Congress done for me lately? What have the banks done for me lately? And the answer is going to be not enough. The answer is going to be that the CEOs of these airlines are still getting these massive golden parachute payouts. And what have I gotten? I've gotten three thousand dollars. That guess what ends up not being worth <laughs> anything. You know the, what I love? In you the know long my run favorite we've is we've all gotten three thousand dollars.
0: Wait, my favorite is that like some I don't I don't remember which airline, but some airline CEO is like I'm going to give up twenty five percent of my salary. First of all, his cash salary is like five percent of his overall comp. And he makes a stupid amount of money. I was like, Are you are you I know. joking? I know. <laughs> you I paid know. yourself 75 million dollars last year. You're gonna you're gonna give up like thirty thousand dollars. And people were applauding him for it. I was like, wow, this is so pathetic. Um you know. okay, so look, what are what are we gonna do, Jill? Where do we go from here? We're in unprecedented territory, we're in uncharted territory. Look at the same time that I'm pessimistic, I'm not all doom and gloom. I actually am incredibly optimistic because here's what I do know. Um, People are incredibly innovative. Um, Crisis breeds amazing innovation. And I do think that coming out of this, we're going to see fundamental changes in how people think and how people work and how people operate. Um, And hopefully, like, Look, I'm going to say it here, and I'm going to say it for the first time. I have never been a political person. I've never, ever thought that I wanted to work in government. The lack of leadership I have seen from our American congressmen and congresswomen makes me want to run for office.
1: Oh, same. That's been a running joke in my house for the last few days is which of us is running for office because clearly somebody needs to. Um, And I I do think that you're right. I think that finally, like our generation who, frankly, has had no incentive to get involved in politics to date, um, because as we've seen over the course of our lifetimes, there are just better ways to influence outcomes, or there have been historically, by being in the private sector. And to an extent, I think that we're seeing that here as well, in terms of all of the private sector participation in confronting the fallout here, But I'm sorry, no, hold on. I want to call bullshit on this. I think a lot of
0: what's happening in the private sector is people developing Messiah complexes and hero complexes. And like, I don't want to become that person where I'm so out of touch with reality. Like, why does Facebook have a million masks? Why why do they own
1: that for their 20,000 employees is the real question I want to ask. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair. I think that there are probably legitimate reasons, whether it's... Um, whether it's on like business continuity plans or whatever it is, these companies have either stock or access to them. And yeah, they're participating just like it's a war effort. You know, a lot of people are knocking Elon Musk for his commentary on Twitter the other day, and I will for sure be among that, that cohort who is, and then they're even knocking his response of having produced a bunch of ventilators and sent them down to LA, But at least he's doing fucking something. (laughs) Honestly, like he didn't have to. And that's true. And I guess this is where my optimism
0: comes in. Okay. So we're talking about a world that is fundamentally unsustainable. We are talking about growing inequality. We're talking about all of these societal problems. And look, you and I love to make fun of venture capital investors in the tech sector. We also work in it. So it's also like a good way to check ourselves. (laughs) I think it's like secretly a form of
1: catharsis, yeah. where
0: we're like, uh, yikes, maybe this person. Here's what I am excited about. I do think there are a lot of people who have a lot of capital to deploy, who believe in fundamentally different things than than the wealthy and the powerful in our world. I think one of the really cool things about crypto that I can never really understate is like, yes, a lot of people got really rich off nothing. And yes, like a lot of stuff that's happened in the crypto space is stupid. But what we now have is we have a group of young people who just like the generation of entrepreneurs before them have created a lot of wealth for themselves who are now um, influential in their own ways, who have the ability to influence the direction of policy, who have an opportunity to shape where things go. That's not to say crypto has any role to play in the recovery. It may to some degree, but like I don't even want to get into that because I think that's so gross in so many ways. But you have a group of motivated people who are financially independent, who are ideologically independent, who are now going to be participating um, in leadership. So, I think that's really interesting. I think the second thing that's been really interesting to watch is like over the last three weeks, something that I've observed is a lot of people who used to go to work every day and go into an office and like do what was conventionally accepted as like the American model for success. Like you go to work in the morning, you sit in your office, you do your thing, you come home, you like, you do that. They're not doing that anymore. And they realize that maybe they don't have to do that anymore. And I think that is really fucking cool. And I am really hopeful that just like post, um, you know, the Great Depression, um, post other crises, we saw this massive blossoming and flowering of creativity and experimentation with lifestyle and experimentation with like new modes of expression and music and art that coming out of this, we're going to see new modes for how we interact, how we operate, how we communicate communicate and just how we exist. Like, that's exciting to me.
1: I agree. I agree. I do think that there is going to be a lot of societal change that comes out of this that is not net negative. I mean, even just if you look at what the big uh, topic of conversation, the big thing that... Silicon Valley, anyway, was bringing their hands over correctly at the beginning of this year pre corona taking over the news um, It was climate change, and I think that you know we're proving that collective action on a global basis is possible um and i that's one area that I'm optimistic that we actually yeah. see I think
0: that, positive change on um I think that i think loosening of regulation around um the medical sector, I think uh, changes in like academia.
1: That's an interesting one. I, I do think that, I mean, we've already obviously seen some loosening of and serious changes in regulation around the medical sector. But I also think I would not be surprised if we see a like Basel three regulation equivalent of the medical sector also come into place where there are standards around which, you know, they need to be ready in this capacity to have this many beds open at any given time to have this much in PPE on hand. I think that that one could kind of cut either way, but... Yeah. I recognize sure. I recognize I'm a bit of a contrarian on that front.
0: Um I think so you've you've got healthcare. I think academia, like education. Education is
1: going to be totally transformed. Yeah.
0: And I think we've been better, talking about that for, for a long better, time. One area I've been thinking about a lot and spending a lot of time on is um, what happens to compute and connectivity. I think we've seen, like, we believe that we have this amazing telecommunication network and that we have, you know, instant connectivity on our phones and our laptops. You and I experienced this last night. We could not connect
1: to save our lives. We could not give voice. For the folks at home, we tried to do this. We tried to do this over Zoom last night to record a video for you all as well. And my bandwidth was just not having it. <laughs> yeah. And
0: so, like, I think there's a huge opportunity here to think about the infrastructure we're utilizing, right? Um, it's not as great as we think it is, and it's not as resilient as we think it is. I think that's a huge opportunity. Um, okay. One thing I want to talk about that we haven't talked about yet that I want to bring up really quickly. Okay. Sports are canceled. The only thing that's going on is capital markets, finance is the new sports
1: cnpc is the new espn it was always kind of espn but now it's really espn yeah
0: um they they've been bringing on like weird retired athletes to like give financial advice and i'm like what what are oh what are God. we doing what are we doing what are we doing guys <laughs> <But> look, <laughs> this is what i think is so funny um and i'm gonna talk for a second about barstool sports because as everyone knows at this point my husband works at barstool sports Pardon. Um, he's team sports. I'm team crypto, team finance, and so we're both fanatics, but our worlds don't intersect. Our worlds now intersect because there are no sports. Everyone at Barstool is doing finance stuff. So the C, um, sorry, the president of Barstool, Dave Portnoy, he's rebranded himself as day trader Davey. and he's been talking about day trading oh every day. Oh my god! That and is today, everything. so today he just discovered options. Today, so this morning, my, my husband runs into to the room and he goes, "Hey, tell me about options." And I was like, "Do no. you have eight hours? And do you understand calculus?" He's like, "No, no, 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 not like not the, the hard parts." He's like, "Tell me how I make a lot of money trading options." Oh my god! Oh my god!
1: <laughs> so.
0: I just feel like, Jill, this is the one time, this is the one crisis where like, maybe I'm halfway relevant. And it's funny because I'm sitting in my study and I'm looking at my copy of Robert Merton's Continuous Time Finance, which lays out a lot of options pricing theory. Um, so I feel like this is the one time where like, maybe I can participate in the new Olympics, which is going to be uh, day trading, like shit talking, capital markets Olympics. Um, mm-hmm. If you haven't yet, there's a Reddit thread called Wall Street Bets that is oh, biggest, I know Wall Street Bets well. <laughs> the funniest thing I've ever seen. But like all of the sports people who are addicted to sp- sports are now like, how do I do this finance thing? I actually think this is really cool. I actually think I am very hopeful that for the first time, it's going to get a whole generation of people who like didn't care about finance or markets to care about finance and markets. And I'm like, in a way, and you made this comment earlier, like the fall of passive and the rise of active and like the need for discretion and in investing as opposed to just indexation. Mm-hmm. I'm actually really hopeful that this is going to lead to sort of a rebirth of people's interest in their own financial well-being. Like that's maybe one of my secret goals is how do we get people to give a fuck about their own financial well-being, their financial literacy, and their ability to manage an investment portfolio?
1: I, I hope so. I, my fear is that people dive in as though this is sports betting and in these extremely volatile markets get totally taken out to sea. My other fear is that there are systemic risks that we're not yet seeing, i.e. in products like ETFs where, okay, maybe you even own the right ETF that's going in the right direction but because of underlying fundamental issues around liquidity and things like that, you get taken out in the wash. Okay. So let's, that's, let's talk about that's that. That. my that's my little like negative pessimistic take on on your attempt to be optimistic.
0: No, no, look, I I have a lot like let's talk about the fact. Okay, can we talk for a second about what happened with money market funds? Yes. Okay, so money market funds historically are treated like a cash equivalent. Um, typically, so for example, I have a self directed IRA or retirement account, um, and in my retirement account, you know, like. I started thinking about maybe moving into cash. So I go to my retirement account. I can't hold dollars in my Vanguard retirement account. I don't have that type of account right now. Mm -hmm. The only thing I can do is rotate assets out of my S&P 500, my Admiral Merging Market shares portfolio into a Vanguard money market fund now a money market fund is intended to be a cash equivalent one dollar equals one dollar equals one dollar in perpetuities. so it's not a growth investment it's intended to be a store of of value um but the interesting thing is and this will start to lead into where i think you want to go with etfs jill The interesting thing is the underlying money market fund itself. So you have a daily nav, right? And the daily nav is a dollar, 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 dollar. But the money market fund itself holds a bunch of different stuff. Now, there's a bunch of regulation around money market funds, and there's a rule that 30% roughly of the NAV or the net assets in the fund have to be liquid, meaning they can be liquidated and sold at any time to cover outflows from the fund. So you'd have up to 30% of the capital in your fund leave and the ability to cover that cash shortfall. But you can hold T-bills, you can hold two-year notes, I think you can hold five and 10 year notes as well. You can hold all sorts of different durations of treasuries and other historically, you know, assets that were considered risk-free, although arguably our whole concept of risk-free needs to be reinvented post this, 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 Financial situation. So basically, what you've had is you have these money market funds, they hold a bunch of different stuff that is differing degrees of, of liquid. Um, some portion of it is liquid, and money market funds have the highest sort of requirement for what has to be liquid. Here's what happened to money market funds, and I brought this up earlier in the podcast. <clears throat> I think this is really interesting and really relevant. Money market funds are typically run by institutions. So as I mentioned, my money is in a Vanguard money market fund. Um, Goldman has a money market fund. Goldman has actually two money market funds. Their two money market funds last week got overdrawn, meaning they had so many outflows that they didn't have the ability to sell more assets to meet their liquidity requirements. So what they had to do is pump cash directly from their own balance sheet into the money market fund.
1: Yeah, that's it's ugly. That is... Absolute carnage when that
0: happening. No, they, by the way, they didn't have to do that. But they chose to do that to stabilize the fund, right? Of and course. to restore investor confidence. Yeah. Northern Trust runs an investment-grade money market fund. It's branded something differently. It has a different brand name on it. Northern Trust um, runs this money market fund. They were short assets in the fund. They couldn't meet liquidity. So they had to inject money into the fund. Mind you, nobody ever withdraws money from a money market fund. Like it's sort of a play. It's like the... It's like
1: the tether of capital markets. Well, it's, <laughs> but, it's like having cash in the bank, or it should yeah, be. We've never mean, this questioned it. This is another thing that we should cover, right? Is there have been whisperings of people taking out more and more cash from their banks in the face of this crisis? Bill Ackman was on TV the other day, hedge fund manager, saying that, yeah, you know, everyone on my team thought that I was totally crazy for taking out massive amounts of cash from the bank. But, you know, everyone's doing it. Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg reporters covered last week, you know, people in New York and the Hamptons and that sort of crowd going up to to ATMs trying to withdraw, you know, $30,000, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, it's this is a phenomenon that, you know, we're seeing people just lose confidence in not just like riskier more complex financial yeah, products
0: but even just assets. safe haven
1: assets going back to what i was saying earlier about treasuries as well and yeah. then today <laughs> melton did you see this um we pull it up so the fdic the chairman of the fdic put out this comical it looks like something off of comedy central uh Sort of piano music softly playing in the background, an American flag behind her, and she's talking and she's saying, don't keep money under your mattress. That's not safe. You don't want to be walking around with large sums of cash on you, uh, on your person or at home. You know The best place to protect your money is an FDIC-insured bank. Then she goes on to say, we're living in unprecedented times, but you should know that since the FDIC was founded in 1933, no one has lost a single penny out of their bank account. It's like, okay, you're telling us that we're living in unprecedented times. And then you're saying, trust us because of our past track record. Right. But also like, we
0: have yeah. literally just broken all of the records that were set during the last great depression. Right. So I exactly. feel like that's really, that's not, it's <laughs> really not gr- great marketing. Going to go ahead and throw that out there. Okay. Talk about ETFs, Jill. So, We've got this shit going on in money market funds. We've got stuff across the board, like all sorts of hidden systemic risk. Um, Talk to us about what's going on in ETFs. And when I buy a share of, you know, my triple levered gold miner ETF, what am I actually buying?
1: Okay. So here's the scary thing to me is what you just said earlier about, you know, stock markets and, and financial markets in general being the new sports that people are following, that people are dipping into for the first time. A lot of where people have been encouraged to go over the last two decades is into ETFs. They're simple products, is, is how they're marketed. Um, in order to get sort of broad based exposure to a given theme, to a given trend, it might be to go short the SP 500, it might be to get exposure to um, the, the general whiskey market or name your alcohol or sort of niche product of choice. There's an ETF for that. Now, the problem is, is that what you're buying there is a basket of securities that is supposed to then be representative of, you know, the overall trend that you're buying into. But oftentimes what happens is the intermediaries who's creating those baskets, they're not always creating it in a totally responsible, perhaps, or totally thought through way from a tail risk perspective. And so what I mean by that is, you know, I used to trade emerging markets credit, right? And at the time that I was trading it, EM ETFs were taking off like wildfire in both directions, people both buying and and inflows into them. And then at other points during my, albeit short career on that desk, um, outflows. But in both directions, what I got to see as a dealer in that market was that those who were creating these baskets were often playing a little bit of an arbitrage game by buying less popular, less conventional securities to put in that basket than perhaps one might expect. So instead of buying just like the you know vanilla benchmark bonds of a given country, they might buy the sort of like weird off the beaten track provincial debt of that company uh, or country rather, excuse me. And what that means is that they might be buying a slightly cheaper security, but at the cost of liquidity on the way back out. So when they come back in to execute redemptions as they're seeing outflows, and suddenly they're looking for a bid in this like bespoke asset that they bought, that they've had bundled into their ETF, that again is being branded and marketed as this very vanilla offering. It's like suddenly there's no bid for for this bespoke asset that they have as the underlying, and what that does to these securities, to these bundles of assets, is really ugly when this happens at scale and across the board, um, because suddenly you were talking earlier about nav net asset not net asset value, excuse me, that just drops out from under the price of of where the ETF is trading. Because again, the ETF is trading as though it's this very liquid asset. And in fact, the underlying is not.
0: Well, and I think that, okay, so this is kind of leads, leads, I think to the the final point of where we're going from here. So you have basically, so you and I, lived through the repercussions of what happened in 08. So, you know, as so you and I have talked about, as the most junior person on the desk, most junior on the per- person on the team, we're the people who are tasked with figuring out how to comply with Basel III, which was the new banking regulation that mandated new liquidity requirements and regulatory capital requirements for banks. we oh, were yeah. the people who are tasked with figuring out Sarbanes-Oxley compliance, which SOX was all, as it was popularly called, SOX, um, it was all about um, a reporting requirements to provide accurate financial statements and sort of an accurate depiction of the fiscal health of the company. We were in charge of thinking about how to comply with things like the Volcker Rule, which segregated investment banking from the proprietary trading arm of an investment bank, right? And so, there were all of these different rules that were implemented in the fallout of 08 that were supposed to make our financial system stronger. In fact, I think what has happened is not not much has changed. And the system, if we look at how quickly, right? So, in 08, um, it took the market, I think, three or four months to go from levels, like the levels they were at to the 20% decline. Um, in prior recessions, that period was like three to six months, in some cases, even up to a year. In this instance, it took about 10 days. Mm-hmm. So the system hasn't gotten any stronger, and we see that. Like, we look at the blowout of the uh, risk parity trade, right? We look at the fact that, by the way, that two trillion dollar injection of capital that happened about two weeks ago that was specifically done to bail out a number of hedge funds that are systemically important. We have fucking hedge funds that are now systemically important. Like, Mm -hmm. this is some long term capital management shit. Which if you haven't read When Genius Failed, you need to read oh, so this book. Good. When Genius Failed, it's about long-term capital management. With, By the way, Bob Merton, again, I'm looking at his book. He was my professor. He was part of that along with um, Rob Sholes and a bunch of other people. The smartest guys you could find, geniuses, their model worked. But it created $4 trillion of systemic risk. Just a crazy story. We're seeing blowouts in dealers. Like, we're seeing a dealer blow up. Ronan Capital is a dealer. We're yeah. seeing intermediaries blowing up. The system hasn't changed at all. No, it's not completely. more
1: resilient, it's more fragile than ever. And this, again, is where I get angry because I look back at 2008, I look at the vast, vast swaths of people who got left behind who didn't get a bailout. And then I look at Wall Street, which, by the way, now Lloyd Blankfein,
0: who, by the way, is perpetrator number fucking one of bullshit post financial crisis. Lloyd fucking Blankfein, who stuffed his own pockets to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars with taxpayer money, is tweeting about fucking
1: inequality. And I'm like, I am sorry. What upside down world do you live in? No. Firstly, he was tweeting about everyone getting back to work and how this was going to be a V-shaped recovery. Okay, we need to talk for a second about the this V-shaped recovery phrase that has taken root on Wall Street over the last two weeks. Oh, V-shaped no. recovery. This is a nice bedtime story that hedge fund managers and other asset managers are telling themselves to make themselves feel better about their books, their their financial portfolios that they're marking down day after day after day. They're telling themselves and they're telling the president of the united states donald trump is now getting on the phone with these people i'm just going to use another phrase but with these with these individuals um, them, like these asking, people are charlatans for advice on what's going to happen with the economy and they're all saying oh this is going to be just like a post 9-11 b-shaped recovery oh, it's going no to be sake. a bounce it's like if you think that you're so out of touch with the average American, okay, 15.5 million Americans are employed in the restaurant industry alone, all right? Right. Well, the employment numbers come out
0: tomorrow, and I think the story is going to be very ugly. It is going to be
1: carnage. It is going to be (laughs) carnage, and it is going to be just the beginning. And all of these hedge fund managers are going to have to, at some point, reconcile not only their books, but also their brains to the fact that this is going to take a real economic toll and where does growth come from in all of this? That is the big Look, question. Is where does I, growth I just come love from that then?
0: Lloyd Blankfein's trying to be like America's moral compass and is trying to be a champion for like economic equality. I'm like, I'm I'm sorry, did we forget that whole chapter of history where for ten years you basically like pillaged the the
1: pockets of taxpayers? Did we we, like skip that chapter of of class? I I can't forget that I can't stand like the, the tech world all of a sudden becoming epidemiology experts. But yeah. there is something particularly bad about Lloyd Blankfein and Wall Street CEOs and hedge fund managers becoming epidemiology experts. <laughs> like, that also, to me is
0: just taking the moral high ground. I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry. I know. <laughs> what? I know. I know. <laughs> what? Anyway, okay. okay. Look, before I feel we like get crazy gonna... pills, I say this to you all the time. I feel
1: like the last two weeks, I've actually felt like I actually I will correct myself. I don't feel like I'm taking crazy pills anymore. I just feel like we are living in this simulation for sure yeah well
0: we're living in like the bad version we're live basically um there was a good someone shared this um and then i want to get to like in the last five minutes my favorite meme of all time i was gonna say the same thing okay we (laughs) we gotta talk about the meme okay fuck everything let's talk about the meme okay
1: what's the meme, melton what's the meme? okay
0: a meme is basically anything that is part of like our cultural zeitgeist that is shared. It's like a, a common sort of, it's a, it's in a, a mental shelling point, if you will, Jill, is that like <laughs> intellectual enough for you? It's a cultural shelling point. And so what is this meme though that you're talking okay, about? This meme I'm talking about is a God level meme. Like this is the system. Hit me with battle.
1: it. Hit the me with God
0: it. is reaching out and touching the finger. Tell like, like, Tell me. Money printer go... <laughs> is the meme. Is it exactly is... Right. I never get tired of it. It is epic. It is beautiful. All of the the runescape money stick go... So, <laughs>
1: okay. the, it's the, amazing. The idea here, the general idea here, is that the Fed and really most central banks around the world have turned on a money printer. And actually, it's not even just the Fed. It's also governments, policymakers, lawmakers lawmakers, turning on the money printer and just making it rain making, baby. It,
0: making it making it rain spending it like it's going out and of style
1: there have been these incredible quotes that have come out over the last week or so uh there was one from an episode of 60 minutes in which uh one of the i think it was the the st louis fed chair um oh, i might wrong uh, on that fact check me but yeah yeah someone, from, someone from one of the regional feds uh gets on 60 minutes and says Am I worried about printing infinite money? No, no, no. Like that's, that's the point is we have infinite money. Like we can, we can make this problem go away.
0: Can the printer run? So there's a great website called... Money dot brr with three R's. We're not sure if it's three or five, or I think we're at like seven now. I'm, I like to go brr.
1: As um, my friend Alejandro, who's a Venezuelan, said to you, Melton, it depends on the country. <laughs> Venezuela has does. about 25 R's. Yeah. Um, so my
0: distinct like, is at like two right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, um, what I think is amazing, so this is a website, money.br. Um, you go on there and there's a little lever you can slide. And you have to turn up the sound. The music is epic. It's so I don't <laughs> even know what song it is. It's like some 80s like hair rock bullshit music. But there's you this can all go find it.
1: You can all go find and it. And the guy,
0: there's a little guy who, by the way... I just want to say this is like 4chan sh- level shit. I don't know. Again, I feel like this is the moment I was Wait. made for
1: because it's like 4chan. Can I just, can I just say though about 4chan is I I posted the other day asking people where they had first heard about coronavirus. and So many people, this probably says more about my Twitter following than anything else. But so many people came back with Reddit. 4chan or Gab as the first place that they heard about coronavirus, yeah. like back in January. All mm-hmm.
0: about Gab, all about 4chan, all about Reddit. But this is also like, by the way, this is also where like the memes come from. So what I love about this meme is it's a continuation. Does anybody remember the Bizanacci videos of 2019, 2018? I do not. I okay. uh, This is over my head even. Okay. Anyways, this meme is a God level meme. Um, it is, I think, the meme right. of 2020. Instead of,
1: instead of continuing to say that it's a God level <laughs> meme, let's get into why and like what it actually means. Right. Okay.
0: What I think is really amazing about this meme, number
1: one, like I I feel like right now, can I just say I feel like you right now are like that sixth grader getting up to give a book report. It's just like, instead of saying what happens in the book is just like, this is the best book I've ever read. This is a God level book, and I would highly recommend it to everyone. And you should all read it. No, okay. Melton, tell us what happened in the book. (laughs) <laughs> okay. So so here's why, here's why I think it's so cool. Number
0: one, never before in the history of memes have memes been about finance or like the economy or seniorage or fiscal politi- policy or like the debasement of the money supply. So the fact that a meme is about the debasement of the US money supply is like, I think really interesting. And I think it captures the cultural zeitgeist of the moment is everyday people are sitting at home, we have nothing to do, reading the headlines. And we're like, damn,
1: this is really messed up.
0: And so, it was here's, so.
1: Here's the thing about it is it captures very well the fear that people have. And it actually captures very well the quandary that policymakers are facing down. Where on the one hand, if they don't act quickly enough... And decisively enough, and with enough force and magnitude behind their stimulus programs, we're gonna be facing down a deflationary spiral like we have never seen before. Like, people are scared, people are losing their jobs, people don't wanna spend, people can't spend because cash is frozen in the system. People talk about this not being a liquidity crisis. This is a liquidity crisis. Just because it's not yet about credit doesn't mean it's not a liquidity crisis because restaurants, small businesses only have so much cash on hand, right? They they are dependent on customers coming in, spinning the wheels and, and revenue. Policymakers are facing this issue of either deflation, so they need to act quickly and turn on the money printers. But if they turn on the money printers too heavily, then we're facing down debasement of the money supply and potentially getting into an inflationary or stagflationary spiral and so I think that that is that to me is what this meme is about and that is why it is so powerful is it captures this this fear on both sides and the struggle of finding a Goldilocks middle road solution.
0: Yeah. And I'll just end with this. There is a great version of this meme where there's a guy with the US Federal Reserve logo behind him with money printer go brr. And um, there's a quadrant <laughs> where it maps out economic left, economic right, and then like intellectual versus Chad, right? Which Chad is like <laughs> common man. And in each of the quadrants, the response to money printer go brr is like No, right. The intellectuals like, no, you can't keep just being a tool of the global Zionist financial elites. And that's, you know, maybe about financialization. And then it's like, no, you can't keep destroying the value of our money. No, we need healthcare and have student loans. No, you're just delaying the collapse of the capitalist system and delaying the revolution. Like everybody is frustrated. Everybody's mad. Nobody sees a way out of this. And literally the only tool we have is just running the money printer and hoping that we can spend our way out of this situation. And that's it. So it's a and way of it. adding levity into a situation <laughs> that just feels real <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> so. let's just spend
1: our way out of this one. That's what I say. You but. know, I I don't know about that one, but <laughs> I kid. I kid. Look, I do. I do think that I do think that stimulus is needed in size now. I think that people, individuals, and small businesses do need a bailout. But I think that I also do really worry about over the long haul. Like right now, cash is for sure king. Everyone is making this dash for cash. <laughs> What does it look like a year from now, 18 months from now, two years from now? I think it could look very different. And that's why I'm still sitting on my Bitcoin and my gold. (laughs) Look, I am all about getting
0: dollars, spendable, cold, hard cash into the hands of as many people and small business owners as possible. I'm so into that. There's no way for us to do that in any way, shape or form that is effective. And we're going to spend billions of dollars trying to prevent fraud. When we're not, we're going to give corporations trillions of dollars and spend zero effort trying to prevent them from committing fraud. So it just that, feels very I misguided. Totally it I feels totally very misplaced. Sad. It's going to become partisan. It's going to become stupid. Like literally, I think people could just set up a gift card booth where they give every person a thousand dollar debit card or $5,000, like just set up a booth, give it to any living, breathing human being who can show up this and is take it from thing, your hands.
1: This is the other reason why I'm convinced that there is going to be mass outrage at whatever program comes of this, is think of the immigrants to this country. Think of the people who do not have social security numbers, who maybe didn't pay taxes last year because they weren't living here yet. Whatever way the government goes about distributing this cash, it's going to be a really, really difficult problem uh, from an equality perspective and from a who gets what perspective. It's, It's really hairy. It's really bad.
0: Well, look, um, my printer go brr, The Fed balance sheet is going to double, like, on a weekly basis, and then it's going to become a daily basis. We're just going to print until we can't print no more. So that's the new
1: reality. And we're either going to be Venezuela or Japan in ten years. So. Yeah, neither one's encouraging. I'm going go,
0: to
1: go. I'm going to go for um,
0: revolutionary France. <laughs> because i was thinking of throwing a marie antoinette themed party but that now feels wrong it's like not a good look it's probably
1: not a good look
0: <laughs> maybe not. right don't, but don't like serve the cake that... at it anyway but, mm,
1: i was going to have a um, guillotine Cancel <laughs> <laughs> listen in all seriousness what can we do about any of this to be honest like on an individual level right now maybe not that much take care of each other take care of your mental health Stay the fuck home. Do not go out. Don't be irresponsible. Socially distance. Self quarantine. And take a deep breath. I don't know. That's that's where I'm at. And probably I get off you. Twitter. Probably get off Twitter too. I'm sorry and also
0: know. learn learn to love, learn to embrace, learn to accept, and let into your heart a money printer. Go.
1: <laughs> All right. I think that's what we've got for this week. Keeping it real. Bye, Jillie. Bye. Hey, this is Jill and Melton. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you, so please hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and, of course, memes.
0: And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.